Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Up and Vanished in a one-night special TV event. Oxygen brings to life Payne Lindsay's hit true crime podcast, Up and Vanished. In 2016, Payne took a deep dive into the disappearance of Tara Grinstead, a young teacher who vanished 13 years ago. His podcast has reached over 240 million people, and Payne is still at work determined to bring closure to Tara's small town. Don't miss Up and Vanished, a one-night special TV event Sunday, November 18th at 7 on Oxygen. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. Let's talk about something super exciting, like the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6, now faster and more powerful than ever before. So you can get even more done, whether it's from your office, at the airport, or on your couch. You can take the keyboard off and draw on it easily, or you can snap it back on and type on it like a laptop. With up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and the new 8th gen Intel Core processor, you can work how you want to for as long as you want to, wherever work takes you. Today's episode of The Watch comes from Amazon's new show, Homecoming, directed by the creator of Mr. Robot, Sam Esmail, starring Julia Roberts. Homecoming follows Heidi Bergman, a caseworker that helps soldiers transition back to civilian life at the Homecoming Transitional Support Center. Four years later, Heidi has started a new life, but questions about why she left the Homecoming facility force her to re-examine her motives and her past. Based on the critically acclaimed podcast by Eli Horowitz and Michael Bloomberg, don't miss the mind-bending psychological thriller Homecoming, available November 2nd, only on Amazon Prime Video. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, it's Andy Greenwald! I feel like I'm making you nervous by being in here. No, it just, it, my wires got crossed up because you're usually not in, in the physical. Aw, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm always in the physical. You're just I, an idea to I, me I, now. I devote a lot of time to this. Greenwald, it is Monday when we are recording this. Today's episode will feature my interview with Eli Horowitz and Michael Bloomberg who worked on, obviously, the homecoming TV show and, and created the podcast the TV show is based mm-hmm. on. So we're really excited to talk to them about homecoming and where homecoming may be going in the future. Mm. But Andy, a s- sad note we wanted to start on is we just learned as we were recording another interview for the podcast of the passing of Stan Lee. I kind of can't believe this. I truly can't because it is, this is someone who is just so foundational, not just to my experience in the world, not just so foundational to pop culture as we certainly as we all know it and understand it today but someone who is just omnipresent and yes he was 95 years old and clearly in declining health and in the news recently as much for shenanigans surrounding the protection his physical well-being his legal status who he was giving power of attorney to he was in the news as much for that as he was for his cameos in mm-hmm. upcoming marvel films but it it is truly shocking to think of a world where he is not in it. But I guess almost the way to begin the conversation is to say there is no way that he will not be in this world through what he did and what he gave us and the way that he gave it to us for many, many decades to come. For people who only have like a sort of cursory or superficial knowledge of who he is as being like, ah, it's the old guy who invented Marvel. Like, Can you give listeners a sense of what he did at Marvel? Yeah, so yeah. It's, a, it's a complicated legacy to be sure. Jonathan Lethem, great novelist and great comic book fan, um, once said that the Stanley Jack Kirby, who was the artist who he co-created many of the great superheroes with, their relationship was kind of like a Lennon-McCartney relationship in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. 
where Kirby, in this case, was more like Lennon, like the, the sort of prickly genius, and Stanley was more like McCartney in that he was a little bit sweeter and the public face of things. That's not exactly accurate, but it's a, it's, maybe it's a starting point if you don't know. So one of the most amazing things is that when Stanley created the Fantastic Four, thus launching Marvel Comics and the Marvel Comics era in 1961, he was, and I, I should have done the math before we started, but I he was already close to 40 mm-hmm. years old and had had a successful but varied career writing for comic books, whatever they were at the time, be they uh, war comics, romance comics, whatever. He was not uh, young and hungry and on the upswing. He was kind of a company man who was ready to try anything. He was deeply inspired and kind of ahead of the curve in terms of what was happening in downtown New York and Manhattan, beatnik culture turning into hippie culture. He wasn't really part of it, Mm -hmm. but he was inspired by it and thought that this is on a very fundamental level, something that completely changed not just comic books, but now how we think about the culture we engage with, thought that superheroes, which existed, DC certainly had Superman and Batman, and all those uh, golden age heroes existed, that they could be fallible, that they could have problems that we could relate to. Mm-hmm. The, the Fantastic Four, it's not just that they got superpowers by flying in a private rocket into space and being bombarded with whatever. It's that they were a family. And that the family part was as interesting as the fact that one of them could light himself on fire or another one could stretch his body. Going forward, that same sensibility created everything that is the template for our culture today, right? Spider-Man, he's a superhero, but he's also in high school. And which one is more difficult? The X-Men have special powers, but they are hated and feared for Mm -hmm. what they are. Marvel revolutionized the 60s before they revolutionized the 21st century by actively engaging with and in some ways echoing the restive nature of the culture, right, in terms of the civil rights struggle, the anti-war movement, all of those things found voices in these comic books, either responding to them or taking inspiration from it or vice versa. Yeah, I think that's something that, you know, is is one of the major sort of driving forces behind binge mode is this idea that you can use these works of far out imagination as a lens through which to understand your reality and that they can reflect reality in some ways better than maybe quote unquote realism can. And that was something that I think was a huge contribution on the part of Lee that, that you could have a story like this that has a, basically a fantasy mythology, but can also take place in the world that's changing around you. The other aspect of Stanley's genius and also the, what led to the controversy over him is that he was, as I said at the beginning, a company man. And he was also as much a salesman as he was writer and creator. And that was often to the benefit of the books. I mean, he himself was a character, smiling Stan Lee, who would write from the bullpen and created this legend of Marvel as a fun place to be behind the scenes. Yeah, and he would like respond to, wouldn't he have like a letter to the editor? From oh, the editor? yeah, Excelsior yeah. from Stan Lee. Sure, and he, right? made, he made quasi-celebrities out of the other people who worked in the office there would be an asterisk on a some you know silver surfer says something to Mister Fantastic, and there would be a little star, and in the bottom it would say, you know, remember when this happened in episode in issue fifteen, Smile and Stan, you know, and he narrated the records that Marvel put out, and his voice became. I mean, I remember listening to his voice growing up before I even really knew what comic books were because I had this collection of like superhero forty fives that mm. someone in my family gave me, but part of being the company man led to this very uncomfortable and at times acrimonious erasure of his co-creators. Jack Kirby co-created Fantastic Four and and so many of these other characters. He was a freelancer when Stan Lee was an employee of Marvel. I think Stan Lee at one point 
when he ceased being editor in chief, signed a, like a lifetime contract for a million dollars a year to always be there. And Kirby was very bitter about that. There's also some discussion that's pretty much proved that Stan Lee was so busy. I mean, he was co-creating and writing all of these books that the Marvel method of writing was really he would sort of let Jack Kirby draw issue of the Fantastic Four about whatever he wanted, and then and he, he would just put, come, in and come and put words on it. Um, similarly, Steve Ditko, co-creator of Spider-Man, there's there's a there's a legacy of of acrimony behind a lot of this that Marvel, to its credit, has done a lot of work to try to repair since adding these artists' yeah, names to it. Marvel's corporate history is is you need you know a 500 page book and and Sean Howe. Yeah, our good friend his, Sean wrote yeah. a 500 page book called Marvel Comics: The Untold Story that really gets into this. But you know it, he is timeless not just because these these characters in some ways reach their full blossom and their full flower in global culture 40, 50 years after he created them. But his style of salesmanship, frankly, of putting himself front and center, of carnival barking these characters into global relevance, that actually is pretty much in vogue now too as well. And I think he doesn't necessarily, I think he deserves credit for that. How much would you say, I mean, because obviously the other thing is that the, in a lot of ways, comic book storytelling has become one of the primary modes of storytelling in popular culture. All the IP stuff we talk about, all the shared universe stuff we talk about, all the soft reboots and hard reboots and re you know rediscovering this content from the past or the future or whatever comes from comic books in a lot of ways, right? Yes, and the idea of brand management and the battle between brand management and creative storytelling. Yeah, like what is a Spider-Man story? This, yeah. come, this can go right back to what Stan Lee did and in understanding that you have a very fine line to walk, right? That you want new stories, new adventures. You want to see things you've never seen before, but you also always want to see the exact same thing. Yeah. And I'm reminded of that because I, I went when I heard this news, I went looking. I got to interview Stan Lee once for Spin in 2002, right before the first Spider-Man movie came out for the Interpol record. Yeah, it was about the <laughs> it was it was about the Interpol record. Smiling Stan says, "Turn on the bright lights." He thought he was so happy. Rock was back. <laughs> yeah, right. It was a total dream come true. Obviously, and what was amazing about him is that he was he was uh, seventy nine years old when I spoke to him, and I don't know what he had been doing right before he got on the phone with me. And I don't know what he was doing right afterwards. I don't know what he was told. I assume much of his time was spent that month having phones handed to him and being asked to talk about Spider-Man, something he was more than happy to do. But my God, was he himself. Yeah. He was completely, talk about turning on the bright lights. I mean, he gets on the phone and he says, is that Andy Greenwald in this voice? And I'm like, eight years old again. It was unbelievable. Yeah, that's show business. That's we, like knowing the person it, you're going to talk to. And like, yeah. It was wonderful. And so I, t- I talked to him for this list that ran in the um, 2002, uh, what issue was this? Well, Moby was on the cover, so you guys do the math. Um, <laughs> June 2000, there was more than one Moby cover. <laughs> June 2002. And I asked him the top 10 things about Spider-Man that should never change. And it- That's early listicle it, work for it's you. Kind of, we, were, we were big in the charticle game back then already. Visionaries. And- I love his answer to the first, the first thing he said was the costume. He said, it's one of the most recognizable icons on planet Earth. They changed it once to black, but thank goodness they changed it back. And he's right. And one of the things that comic books was doing during that era, and it kind of is always at war with, is how far away from the original template can you run? There was this whole thing about how the comic book was ruined when Peter Parker got older than high school, when he married Mary Jane, and they're always kind of retcon the stuff back. And he was just right. He said the costume should never change. His existential torment, his love for Mary Jane, his concern for his Aunt May. And it's kind of conservative to say those Mm -hmm. things. But these are also, it's mythology. And they are central to our understanding and our appreciation of the character. And it's kind of, I think, the best stories in these icons that he created exist within the gate, basically, or the fences that he laid down. 
Yeah, and I think that the sort of testament to his legacy, and despite all the rank, corporate wrangling that happened behind the scenes at Marvel, and obviously the the conversations people are going to have about authorship in probably the next few weeks when it comes to Stanley, I think that we can look at just the fact that we're about to head into the end of of a certain mega phase of Marvel movies mm-hmm. uh, with Avengers next summer, and whatever comes after that as a sort of as a as a testament to his legacy as a as a a thinker yeah and and this vision that he always had and this is detailed really well in Sean's book it's not just that he created these these icons and told some of their most amazing stories mm-hmm. it's that he always insisted that these were global stories that these that comic books were not just for kids that these should be the biggest stories yeah. in the world and people thought he was crazy and Sean's book is littered with these Hollywood deals that fell apart and mismanagement and mistakes. And he never wavered. And part of that was his business. He was the face of the business in Hollywood. He was out there at the polo lounge shaking hands and glad-handing and saying, look at these fabulous characters we've got for you. But honestly, at some point in the 60s, I really feel this. If you had said to him, Walt Disney Company will one day buy these characters and make them the most famous brands in the world, he would have said, yep. Yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. You respect that. I mean, that is an incredible American story. Okay, uh, anything else you want to hit before we get to our interview with Eli and Micah? Um, How you doing? I'm good. I'm great. <laughs> I'm terrific. <laughs> Post is a roller coaster. Um, but I just have one other thing yeah. before we get into it. Is this, is this about Beto? Is this about the Cowboys? I have strong opinions about Beto. I have strong opinions about Philadelphia sports on this, on this Monday. And I feel okay asking this question right now on the microphone for two reasons. One, because I know you don't care, which is going to make great radio. <laughs> but two, I kind of like trial ballooned this question to our friend Mallory Rubin the other night oh, yeah. at dinner. And it's this. Now, I am a, it's not that I'm a Harry Potter atheist. I am a complete agnostic. I have not engaged with Harry Potter on any level of culture. I've so, not read the I mean, books. To be an atheist, you would just have to think that it doesn't, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. sort of has been proven otherwise. Has it, though? <laughs> to me, it doesn't. I mean, it has not permeated this bubble. But that was mostly because I was looking forward to discovering these books and these movies with my kids at uh-huh. some point, and that point is coming up soon. Yeah. So that's great. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that, that J.K. Rowling, speaking of Stan Lee and his vision, I'm thrilled that she is certainly the heir to that tradition of having this, these characters that she created and sitting on this gold mine and spinning these stories that have entranced the world. That's all terrific. I'm happy about it. Here's where I begin to bump up against it, though. There's a new movie that's coming out like in a week or two. I'm not going to see it. But there are posters everywhere. And it's called The Crimes of Grindelwald. Grindelwald. Grindelwald? I think so, yes. Obviously, that name's a little too close for comfort. <laughs> I've talked myself into thinking it's more like National Lampoons. It's like the Griswolds and like Clark's Crimes at Wally World. Just the idea of you driving down Sunset and like every mm. six blocks being like, what did I do? <laughs> That's actually some pretty good insight into my psychology. But my problem with that is, what the fuck is that? Right? What is that? Who's Grindenwald? Why did he commit crimes? Why can't you just call it Magic School Part 9? But the, what is wrong Because there's with been that no idea? Magic School Part 1 through 8. I mean, they all have like... Yo, some free advice. She's worth a billion. She could be worth two billion if that should have been called Harry Potter and Magic School. <laughs> It's so much more interesting to me than a sorcerer's stone. I don't know what that is. Am I wrong? Like, 
You know I'm not wrong. I know it worked out, but you know I'm not wrong. So wait, if you could go back in time and J.K. <laughs> Rowling is like, this is this idea I have about a magic school, yeah. but I'm calling it Harry Potter and the et cetera, et cetera. You would have been like, J, J.K. J.K., J. J. I'm, I'm not just, K. Just call it magic school. Now, Mallory's response to this was... To spit in your face and kick you in the shin? No, she spit in my food. <laughs> She's a lady. Mallory's response to this was to tell me that back in the go-go 90s, mm-hmm. when she was 10 years old, I don't know, how old is Mallory? Mallory's much younger than us, isn't she? She says that the American publisher cha- did change the name one step, because apparently in England it's called the Philosopher's Stone, which la-de-fucking-die, England, all right? <laughs> That was her first thing. But she said that the American publisher wanted to call it Harry Potter in the School of Magic. And I'm okay. like, give these guys raises. <laughs> <laughs> Those guys saw the future. <laughs> Those guys all work at Halliburton now. <laughs> Those guys are smart AF. Yeah. Okay. And I just feel, I know that geek culture in general is the lingua franca of our times. This I is, don't they, know this doesn't you need my help. really have this leverage. You just like started crying about Stan Lee for 10 minutes and now you're like, but... Harry Potter fans are dorks. I'm the problem. (laughs) I'm not blaming the fans. This is the crime of Greenwald. This is apparently good content. Uh Uh-huh. And you know this. Kaya knows this. All listeners know. Nothing makes me happier than good content. (laughs) That's just who I am. That's what I'm about. I love content. Is this the capstone on your take or is there another part going? Here comes the last part. (laughs) Okay. Then we can come back to my feelings about content. Yeah. Which is really where where this crazy ride got started anyway. (laughs) It's that... Geek culture wins, but it's already won. And so now you don't need this movie to be called Fantastic Beasts, colon, The Crimes of Grindenwald, right? You can just call it Grown Ups with Magic Wands, whatever. And I just feel like, like the, you remember the film Avatar, the quote-unquote highest grossing film of all time? I still don't quite buy that. Show me the pay- Show me the tapes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you want to see the ballots? <laughs> I've just stopped the recount. <laughs> Box office mojo. So finally, they're making these movies. Wait, I want to just tell people, Andy is looking at his computer as if he's got like a, got a nine point sort of point here. Yeah, I, I've got a tough book open. I got a PowerPoint on display. Okay. No, I've got, I've got hard data to back me up here. So finally, years later, nine years later, to the delight of no one, they are making four more fucking Avatar movies, mm-hmm. right? Back to back to back. Like they're all Great. like shooting now. Yeah. Great. Wonderful. These movies should be called Avatar 2, 3, and 4. Wait, do you know what they're called? Yeah, that's what I have oh, open yeah, here. right. Tag you yourself. Which one of these are you? <laughs> I know what I am. What, what, is that, what does that mean? Like, one taught me patience, one <laughs> taught me pain? Freedom off. Avatar, the way of water. Avatar, the seed bearer. <laughs> Which, <laughs> come on now. Come on. I think it's Jimmy Butler's nickname. Avatar, the Tolkien Rider. And finally, the Avatar cycle is complete with Avatar, colon, the quest for Iowa. Do you think that, like, in 2023, Uh when when President Ivanka Mm -hmm. is ruling over (laughs) District 13, Mm -hmm. and we're just like, have you you seen the the seed bearer yet? Have you you checked that one out? Like, do you, well, is this just, they're going to come out over the next, like, eight years? What's the plan here? First of all, I'd like to go on the record as saying, this shit's never coming out. I you just, don't think Avatar is coming out. They built a theme park already. 
Why? Why did they do? Can we just do? Can we just have a moment as a culture? I know we can. These are very fractured times. But maybe we could all come together and be like, let's get a mulligan on this one. Like we just, it, it's a movie. It's about what's crazy blue is people. that this lost to Hurt Locker. It feels like Hurt Locker came out in 1956, <laughs> and that's when Avatar came out. Jeremy Renner was such an innocent boy. He had flipped nary a house. Can we talk? Okay, what do you remember for real? Like, what do you remember about the film? Avatar. I, okay. Do you remember Rabisi <laughs> turning his space office into a putting green? Because that's my ma- in fucking three D. Well, I also remember there's like a lot of stuff with like I have a tail now. Yeah. Right? Like they all like they get plugged in and then they're like, wow, I have a tail. I'm tall and blue. Yeah. I remember Sam Worthington, uh, America's leading movie star. And that's about it. There, it's Pandora, right? That's where it's at. Uh. I guess so. Yeah. It sounds familiar. We're really offering a ton. I, I, I just mean <laughs> this podcast. I just feel like you just can't call it the. To- Do you think? Okay, here's the question: Will the, the Avatar the, writer? Yeah, here's I'm going with this. Will Avatar the Seed Bearer really set up the expectation for Avatar the Tolkien writer? Like, will we? Will the credits? I'll roll, still be trying to figure out what the way of water is. Will the Seed Bearer? Will the credits roll in the Seed Bearer being like, I can't believe. Jimmy We've, Butler was the seed bearer all Jimmy along. Butler was the seed bearer, but like this whole time, Troy Sivan, or whatever you say his name, I can't believe he's going to ride a Tolkien. Like, I can't believe it. I'm so excited. How will these 18 months go by, or six months, or whatever, <laughs> before I see him fully ride a Tolkien in 9D yeah. from the bottom of the fucking ocean? <laughs> Both due to global warming <laughs> yes. and because that is James Cameron's yes. preferred way to see Where a film. Dear leader of Vanco will allow us that 90 experience. Magic school. It's right there. Sp- Go back to Stan Lee. He called it Spider-Man. Uh-huh. He didn't call it the wayward curse of the arachnid. <laughs> Calm down. That's my take. We'll be back after a word from our sponsor with my interview with Eli Horowitz and Michael Bloomberg. Today's episode of The Watch is sponsored by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection. Explore the vast number of things you can do with your secure smart home like doorman service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids. Or turn down service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat. Or even worry-free getaway service, which is my favorite. That lets you arm your system, lock up, and set lighting schedules before you go on vacation. All controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection and don't worry about installing and configuring your system, ADT will D-I-F-Y do it for you. Just go to ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Here's a little insider travel secret from our friends at Hotel Tonight. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. And Hotel Tonight is partnered with these awesome hotels to help them sell those unsold rooms, which means you get incredible deals. Seriously, if you love scoring amazing deals at amazing hotels, you've got to try Hotel Tonight. Forget scrolling through never-ending lists. Hotel Tonight shows you a select list of incredible deals at cool hotels that they think you'll love. And they even give short profiles of each hotel, complete with all the info you need and pictures of what the rooms really look like. Plus, even though their name 
Christmas Hotel tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can also book in advance, so it's perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, booking a place with a pool, and more. I've been using Hotel Tonight for about two years, and sometimes I even let Hotel Tonight tell me where to go. I'll look at deals on the beach, deals in the desert, deals in the mountains. I'll see what they've got going, and if it looks really awesome, I'll just pick up and go. So start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. Go to hoteltonight.com or download the app now. I am joined by two of the minds behind one of my favorite shows of the year. Easily, Andy and I have been talking about it for the last couple of weeks. Michael Bloomberg and Eli Horowitz, thanks for coming. Welcome to The Watch. Good to be here. You guys have such interesting backgrounds and such a circuitous sort of route to being showrunners, essentially, that I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about where you came from to start with. I went to NYU film school, and then after that, I got into production sound mixing. So when you uh, go to shoot anything like a documentary or a feature or a commercial, you bring like a camera person and a director and some talent, and then you also need like a sound mixer, like someone to lob up the actors and, and run the boom mic and stuff like that. So that was my career for like 10 years. Okay. And, um, and you did like Martha Marcy May Marlene. I did, so, yep. yeah. I did yeah. Martha Marcy May Marlene. I did uh, Lena Dunham's second movie called Tiny Furniture, yeah. and then I did um, All Is lost um with robert redford and i accidentally got nominated for a bafta for that because there's no talking in that movie surprised you didn't get pneumonia on that set i know it was well it was in mexico oh okay in the tank where they shot uh, titanic so it was pretty warm and then um yeah so i did that for a really long time and then nights and weekends i was writing scripts and screenplays and stuff like that and um I just sort of refused to realize it was ridiculous. And then um, eventually a couple of the features that I worked on uh, got made yeah. and got into festivals and stuff like that. And then one of the plays that I wrote, uh, a one-act play, kind of found its way to the Gimlet people. And uh, that's how I got hired to work on Homecoming, the podcast. Amazing. Yeah, Eli? So, yeah, for about 10 years, I worked at McSweeney's, this independent publisher in San Francisco, editing and designing the books and the quarterlies. And there we always thought a lot about the shape of the book, the form of the book, and how that could help how the story was done. Mm-hmm. The story was told, how the story was read. And so then when I left that, I wanted to keep doing that sort of thing or asking those sort of questions. So I was doing these weird digital books, novels that came out as apps. And so I did that for yeah. a few years. And then somehow that grew into this job at Gimlet, where it's sort of the same... It was totally different, but the same kind of thing of taking a medium and trying to figure out how it can tell a story, hopefully in a new way, but also that kind of respected its tradition. So would you guys say that on a scale of like one to five, how familiar were you with the processes of television production when you were getting into, when you meet Sam? Because you go from from doing these different mm-hmm. jobs and working at McSweeney's and doing sound design, you probably had like some idea of, of, of how this stuff all worked, but I'm curious how it feels to go from outside of it to showrunner. And, and what that feels like and what that looks like. Yeah, I was going to say my level was zero, but I'll <laughs> upgrade it to maybe 0.6. Okay. I did have experience with conference calls <laughs> that don't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Putting so, pins and things, yeah, circling right. back on things. Right. There was yeah. a lot of that. So I, got, I was pretty experienced at that, but um, everything beyond that has been a real mystery. Yeah, and I mean, I was very familiar with just basic production and mm-hmm. TV and movie production and how sets work and how, you know, movies are scheduled and stuff like that on a day-to-day basis. I knew nothing about basically Hollywood and how that works and then also how development and 
overall like executive production works. And I think when I started, the way it felt to me was like doing a crossword puzzle with no black squares. There wow. was just like no, because we were being told like, whatever you guys want, just do, you know, just figure it out, do it. Let yeah. the creative sort of guide you. Like, and we all love the podcast. And then you would go to this office and literally be sitting there and like, I don't know. And then like the next, the, the days sort of just started to, fall into place and mm -hmm. we were working on these scripts and stuff like that. And then they would just schedule meetings with like, you know, line producers and production designers. And, and as he said, like, luckily Sam was there to sort of shepherd us through the process because he'd been through it before. But when he did it, he was a first timer too, you know, with yeah. his show, Mr. Robot. So I think they just sort of throw you in the pool. And is there, is there anybody there who's like, well, you guys need a B plot for this episode or, or something <laughs> no. like, no, no. Okay. No. So, and did you ever <laughs> feel because that's the thing that's so great about the show is it, it once feels incredibly formally inventive and it and very familiar. Genre-wise, it feels familiar. And, mm -hmm. and maybe even um, there's a certain naturalism to the acting. And obviously, like most people have spent 30 years with Julia Roberts in their lives. So they're just kind of, there's a level of familiarity. But then, of course, there's so many parts of the show that are completely disorienting. So I was always wondering whether or not there was somebody who had their hand on the wheel and then somebody who was like, I'm going to go, let's see if we can do this. And let's see if we can do that. And let's see if we can do this. But I imagine that you've been thinking about this story for years now, right? So you you know the material better than anybody else. Yeah, it's interesting. The way you say that, it's like there's, there's kind of two ways to think about that. I think the way that Eli and I write together, there is this weird mix of uh, like – very precise structural integrity mixed with sort of wandering around and babbling. Mm -hmm. And those are sort of our two respective responsibilities. <laughs> so like my job is to kind of dive in with the characters and hear them talk and let them sort of take the scene into these like weird, strange, like sometimes naturalistic, funny, uh, unexpected places. And then it's sort of Eli's job to try to corral all this into uh, a house that can stand up. Yeah. And then even more than that, like really like sneak up on a viewer and take them by surprise. Prize. So I think that mix is sort of what makes the the sound of it and the feel of it pretty distinct. And then when we, Eli and I started working with Sam, it was like, he has this very rigorous sense of film history that he really cares about. Yeah. And so he brought to our weird kind of offbeat story, there's these like nascent elements of paranoia and thriller and things like that. And what he brought to that is like the signifiers of that so that the audience like knows the genre that they're in. They're not getting the beats necessarily that they're expecting, Yeah. but they're so unsettled because they're being cued in these genre ways. Like something is happening. You've seen this before. Yeah. And then, um, I think it creates a sort of strange taste, yeah. The first time Sam walks in and starts talking about Hitchcock and De Palma and, and Parallax View, are you guys like, yeah, for sure. And that was always there. Or are you like, oh, okay. Well, at first it was just something to talk about. Sure. You know, everyone yeah. loves talking about 70s paranoid thrillers. It's become just sort of this exalted form. But yeah, but we, I think we had no idea how far he would take it, how literally he meant those references. Yeah. We talk about TV, especially on this podcast, so much in this, I mean, I kind of almost as like a a fallback, but we always seem to just describe like these auteurist theories to to TV where it was like, well, this is Matthew Weiner's show or this is Sam Mills show. But this seems like such an interesting collision of ideas that actually wound up all fitting together. And if you looked at it just on paper, you would just kind of like, okay. Like, I don't know if you guys know, but like, there's this whole joke on the, on sort of like film Twitter area, which is like, it's basically director bullshit. And it's when 
a director like way before a movie is really even out yet is like, well, you know, I've been incredibly influenced by Apocalypse Now. And then it comes out and it's like Kong Island. It's like Kong Skull Island. <laughs> right. and you're like, sure, I can see it. But you're also just like, you're kind of buying yourself like six blog posts just by saying that. But then when the movie comes out, it looks like a Michael Bay movie, right. just like everything else does. In the jungle or something. Yeah, and but like, like oh, this okay, yeah. isn't direct director bullshit. Like he found something inside this material and you guys made this thing that it doesn't, I, one of the things I think is crucial is that even though there are these signifiers, like you're saying, of these past thrillers, it feels very contemporary to me. And, and, and the paranoia and the, that feeling like I've medicated something out of my mind is like very, I think, prescient for right now. I mean, do you guys think about those things in terms of making sure it wasn't a museum piece and not in a gallery where like, check out my cool, you know, homage to rear window here you know it's right well i think that gets back to the collaborative element that you were talking yeah. about because um you know the way first of all the way mike yeah, was talking about the way he and i work together i think is really important that there are two brains and um if one person tried to do both sides of that they would kind of infect each other too much and that tension is i think really helpful and it was the same when sam came aboard in some ways, he was working with the material. In some ways, that was contrasting. There was a tension between that style and these sort of naturalistic, very human scenes, mm -hmm. which is you know not necessarily something you go to De Palma for, sure. right? So it was because that had to be integrated with these scripts that it sort of did and sort of didn't fit with that hopefully makes it all feel like something strange but functional rather than kind of a genre exercise or just people talking in a room or just this rigid series of beats with yeah. no life to it. For the material, obviously coming from the podcast, and I, I found that each person that I talked to about Homecoming, the podcast, has completely different readings on different interactions or, or feels differently about Colin than the next person or feels differently about David Schwimmer than the next person in terms of his performance. There's something that once you commit it to film, I think it gets a little bit more fixed. And for as much as you can have a variety of opinions or takes on something, you're committing to an understanding of the material. What was that like? As you know, you're putting together this collage of phone conversations and tape recordings, and you know all these little things that are in the podcast, and then they become basically, well, this is the historical record of this story now. Oh, that's interesting. So you're saying like once it's a TV show, it kind of like that'll draw the attention, yeah, and that'll I think become people the real are document. like for as is interesting and and as for as much as I love Catherine Keener on the mm -hmm. podcast, like now I'm never going to not think of. Julia Roberts when I think of right. Heidi, you know, and now I'm never going to not think of that specific lighting of the offices when I think of the the facilities offices, you know? Yeah. I mean, what, what you're saying makes me think like when you do the podcast, when we did the podcast, not only does the viewer not know what it looks like, the facility mm -hmm. in there, like we didn't know. And we never once talked about it. Really? And, or uh, ever. Okay. Like it was just, <laughs> it, ne it was not necessary and didn't come up and that's not our process. Like we didn't like sit around and like each draw pictures and have, and maybe there's a process there that's really good. That's just not how we work. Yeah. And we were just talking about the characters, their interactions and how it's going to affect the overall story. So when we went to do the TV show, we start, you know, people started asking us like, well, what does it look like in there? And we literally had to invent that stuff and just like come up with it. And then you say that to a technician or an artist, and then they sort of try to express that idea. Um, so yeah, it's like the podcast just had, you know, in a way had these like 
people in this like elemental situation. And then when we went to the, do the TV show, all this other stuff kind of grew around it. Um, and that's one key difference is that like the, yeah, the TV show is always going to have more resolution mm-hmm. and be more high definition because it has those details in there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was thinking about that scene when you were talking of, of when Colin and Heidi go back to the office when she's, when she's going back to the address that she has in the envelope and she's walking through and it's that disorienting. She's been here before, but she doesn't recognize any of it. I, I imagine that must have been almost like watching the show get made. It's like you've <laughs> in your mind been there before, but you haven't really seen it. So it's this new experience. Yeah. And it's also interesting because a lot of our job there on set was to keep it true to the show yeah. and all these little decisions. And so there was this constant questioning of myself also of well, what is the show? Because we're sort of rediscovering the show, you know, once in the podcast, once in the writing, and then another time, of course, when we're making it. So deciding like, I know what the show was, but I'm still figuring out what the show is becoming. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I read an interview with Sam where he talked a little bit about what the show is about to him. You know, and I think that everybody's thrown around paranoia, but he mentioned something specifically, I think, about it's about lonely people connecting. Hmm. Is that what you guys think it's about? That's a good one. <laughs> That's solid. For me, I think it's a more about or also about um, the compromises we make and the blinders we put on ourselves. Because um, I think a lot of what happened to Heidi, she did to herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of what she wanted to think about. And I feel like we're always kind of um, creating a narrative for ourselves to get us through the day or to justify going after what we want yeah. or what we're not proud of. And so I think Heidi had to navigate that in a way that connection with Walter is what brought her back to a, maybe a truer or simpler or less conflicted version of yeah. herself. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with all that. And then to me, the thing that is at the. For me, the thing and writing it and thinking about it is like this sneaking suspicion that you might not be the person that you think you are or that you aren't a good person. Mm -hmm. And so like, and it's pretty reductive, but um, if you've ever gotten like really drunk or something or like blacked out kind of and then heard about things that you did, it's like a very specific sensation to like have done something and then have someone describe it to you. No, I mean- that it's one of the only things in society that you're allowed to say like, oh, I was drunk, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know what I mean? But <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Well, you can't say like, oh, I didn't have a granola bar at 11 a.m. so I lost right. it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so this is, we kind of create, rigged up this whole yeah. thing to like sort of, but that it's the eeriest feeling like someone's telling you about something that you did and you have no recollection of it and the position that puts you in. And so for me, a lot of the scenes sort of center around the problems around that. And it's weird how the tendrils from that sort of grew out and get to identity memory, the government, complicity, like all these different things just from this sensation that this one character has that I feel like people are very, that anyway, I was very gripped by. Well, you know, one thing I've been thinking about a lot, because I went back and listened to some of the pod again after watching the show. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things that kind of translates from the pod and through the show is this, what happens when... um, it's hard to articulate, but basically what happens when a group of people are working on an idea, Mm -hmm. it's kind of an interesting idea about collaboration, but just 
how things can get corrupted, basically, mm-hmm. how an idea can get corrupted, how some another person can get corrupted. And I think that that happens in just like any office. It's just like, well, one person has an idea and they're like, what if we did this? And it's like, well, I'm going to take a piece of it. This person's going to take a piece of it. Somebody's going to have a note on that and tell you, you can't do it this way. And what if we did this? Or what if the real reason we were doing it was actually for this? Yeah. And all these different things start to come into it and you get into the hierarchical situations. And I loved that the higher up you go into Geist, the more almost mythical it becomes <laughs> mm-hmm. because then it's just like, well, what are we even doing? Like, and who's telling us to do what we're doing? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think in that group, the way that it's this collision of individuals that creates the plot, I think is pretty central to homecoming that there actually isn't, you know, people talk about this individuals versus institutions that's yeah. kind of inherent yeah, yeah. in the paranoid thriller. But to me, in a way, homecoming is the opposite of that because these maybe individuals assume that they're going up against these powerful institutions, but really it's in, it's individuals all the way up. Yeah, you know, and, and, and everyone just panicking and people, making it up. Most of those people probably have pretty sincere motivations. I mean, it even seems right. like in ways Colin does have yeah. a sincere motivation. I would say half that, a- and half he's you know scared yeah. and not that competent. But still, those are just human experiences, you know. So, I, and on some level, I think like the idea that. There's a puppet master controlling all of us is almost a reassuring fantasy, even if it's like evil. But there's a geist. Yeah, it's like like it implies an order and it kind of implies a a difference between me and them, right? Yeah. Um, But I think. Or I had to do it. I was being told to do it or I'm getting paid to do it or whatever it is. I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the performances on the show because they're so good and they're so unflashy. Like there's nobody who's like, I just I found myself never being bored by any of it, and but specifically not by Bobby Cannavale. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to ask you about how he brought to life some of the more formally inventive parts about the podcast, where it's like these phone conversations and this guy Colin who's like running around, and then you see him. And I, I think that's sort of my one of my favorite elements of the show are the interactions between Julia and Bobby and the split screen. And and could you tell me a little bit about the process of making those scenes? Because I, I think Bobby has said that he was on set doing those conversations live, right? Yeah, so we would do the calls twice where we would be, let's say, with Bobby at Ron's house or with Bobby at the golf course or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then Julia would be on set on an earwig. And then they would sort of have fake phone communication between each other. And then they would do the scene that way. And then however many days or weeks later, we would shoot the other side. So Julia at the facility or or Julia at her house or whatever like that. And then um, it was up to the editors to uh, bring those together Mm -hmm. um, via the split screen and kind of make that all work. And... You know, the idea when it initially came up was like, oh, that'll be cool. Like split screen, it's very much in the genre and everything like that. And, but there wasn't like, I think you could approach that from a very like systematic storyboarded way. Like Mm -hmm. here we're going to be like this and here we're going to be like that. But it wasn't really shot like that. It was a little (laughs) bit more haphazard than that. I think in a good way because it left room for the performances and everything. And it became in the editing, just sort of like kind of leading on the editors to make those performance work and kind of bring them together. So between treating the phone sound as like proper phone sound where it has like a futz on it is what they call it. And then also basically like timing out the lines and getting those overlaps right because those are arguments that they're having, you know, so they're kind of talking over each other. So it's really, it it came off really seamlessly and those scenes like have an energy to them that's really great. But it was sort of a feat of editing to bring these very disparate things together. And you can do so much when you're showing it. I mean, like in the the Schwarmer-Keener conversations, uh, you know, 
I, I was always fascinated by how you know he would get distracted or he would always have three or four things going on and he was so able to kind of be like, oh, this Detroit airport looks great, you know? And, yeah. But then he would also be like kind of reprimanding her or asking her questions. But in the show, you get these amazing character beats that you can't show in a podcast, obviously. It's like whether it's the face painting or um, the golf bag or even like Heidi... Heidi having the um, the iPod headphones and Colin having Bluetooth says something <laughs> about those characters and all these little flourishes are so great in that way. Yeah, it was definitely an effort. You know, we'd first write the scene often and then we'd think, well, what's he doing? Where is Colin in this one, you know? And yeah. it was this balance to, on one hand, keep challenging ourselves and pushing ourselves, but then we also had to rein ourselves in because you just kind of wanted, like, what's the most ridiculous thing Colin could be doing or wearing and put that in. Yeah. And then also we had this tick where we kept having people just be arranging objects <laughs> yeah. um, just because it was a thing to do. But then we realized like we had 16 scenes of people arranging things. Yes. Everyone was OCD. Yeah, Everyone so was then we had like, to pull yeah, ourselves pull back. Pull that back a little bit. <laughs> What was like the most out there Colin location that you got rid of? I mean, I feel like the most out there thing that which we ended up keeping was when he was doing that whole scene in the face, face paint, painting. Yeah, which was that even only on set? That was uh, our great AD Peter Cohn, um, who has a legendary film career. Is like, wouldn't it be funny if he had face paint? Yeah, and then it was like, oh, everyone was like laughing in the van, so they decided <laughs> to do that. We can actually kind of top that. There was this in that same scene. <laughs> there was in the script, Colin is fascinated by a um, <laughs> stiletto high heel uh -huh. silver silver that he's arranging outside the door so it's there's only like the briefest remnant of it in the show right now he does stop and rearrange uh, some shoes you can check it out in yeah, episode well, 3 I think it was when he's coming into the house and <laughs> yeah. he starts like yeah well you have a really good memory yeah. so yeah so just so you know that was our uh, most glorious overreach <laughs> was to somehow delve into like Colin's got a foot thing or a shoe <laughs> thing or something and like that's how like kind of desperate and bored we were like trying to come up with stuff for him to do and then luckily I think only the best stuff made it through yeah and I thought that that was the same thing it, on a, in, a, in a completely different um, frequency, I thought that was very, also great about Carrasco, who's a character who really obviously has been expanded in the in the in the, uh, in, the in this season of the show, or at least it's it's a much different than our understanding. And but everything about it, it's like if Shea Wickham's not playing that part, I don't really know if I have the same read on that character. And it he found this like rumpled, but like pretty like pretty like morally like an honest guy who's sitting in front of this DOS prompt. And this DOS prompt is like the lever of justice in some way in this show. Right. And he's someone who getting back to this kind of institution thing assumes that the institution, you know, heroism for him is to serve the institution. And he's coming to terms with the fact that the institution is just a bunch of Pam Bailey's. Yeah, and he's not as good looking as like Woodward or Bernstein. <laughs> and he's, you know, his mission is not going to ever be like on the front page of the Washington Post. I really, I thought his his whole whole performance was great. Let's talk uh, if, to the extent that you can. I'm curious about what it's like going into. You have this show out. You have the reactions to this show out, and I wonder whether or not, like you guys, you know, you're around. You're on this podcast, like. How does that get into the writer's room at all for season two? Does we, it start to creep into your minds, even if it doesn't creep into absolutely. the Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, we love to hear about the characters that people are really connecting to, the storylines. Just this weekend, I was talking to someone about um, Schreier yeah. and his storyline. And I think, like, 
especially when there's so much room in the story. Like, like Schreier's bit is so he's got this like Florida theory and then he, you know, gets removed and, you know, it's like spoiler or whatever. And then he shows up again in 2022, sort of wrecked and yeah. destroyed by this program. You know, in some ways we are, we're like, okay, what's the arc for this season? And we've, we have never done multi-season shows before. Um, so I was like, okay, great. Done with Schreier, moving on. Like we got to get the rest of this written and put together. And then it's so interesting to hear people like, they really want to know what next for that guy or that person. Yeah. And so that was something for me, like I wasn't really thinking about that, but then when we start to consider season two and as we like are getting more and more into it, it's fascinating to see, first of all, like what people attach to. And then secondly, what they don't really care as much about or like, aren't like, you know, focused on as much. Um, so I'm, I'm watching it pretty closely. Yeah. It's been great just because when you're making a thing, you are always making these guesses about mm-hmm. the person on the other side, especially if it's kind of a mystery. You know, you're always deciding where they're going to know, where they're going to be wondering, and you're very much in a dialogue with that imaginary person. And then normally I put the thing out and I just kind of shrug and move on to the next one. So this is so weird in that we have actual numbers, sure, perhaps even hundreds of people on <laughs> <laughs> experiencing this on the other side. And so it's just great information. I mean, it's dangerous because you don't know what to take from it. Like, sure. Just because people want to see more of a thing, do they actually want to see more or do they just want to want to We've learned about this more? term called fan service, <laughs> yes. which I didn't, I'm sure is very familiar to yeah. you. I didn't know about that. But then, yeah, you're like, it's. I've never had this impulse where like, oh, this is what they want. And yeah. then there's this but part like, of your Cruise brain. has to be happy. Right. And yeah. then you're like, okay, well, how do we do that? Yeah. And then like, you're, and then there's this part of you that's like, well, we got to give the people what they want. Yeah. And then it's like weird to have to be like, well, hang on. It's like, is that really what they want? Or like, is that an expectation or a desire that we can like do something with to drive further into a story? Because they just don't want a bunch of people like hugging and kissing and sitting around happy. They want like not until season three, right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) they'll accept it then. Um, Do you guys have like a loose timeline of you're writing now, and then would you try to go to production sometime next year or sometime next year? That seems. Possible. Like a good thing to say. Sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I wanted to ask just because it's we're starting to wind towards the end of the year, and not to put you guys on the spot, but we start asking people a lot around this. What's uh, what's your favorite thing you've seen recently? Um, maybe maybe from this year. Is there anything that on, t- on TV or in the movies that you've been really inspired by or really lo- loved this year that you, you wanted to uh, highlight? I just watched Outlander and the Great British Baking Show, and I've been working through <laughs> Game of Thrones. Like, I have the most like boring. I mean, I don't know those. Are, I think those are great shows. Those are great but, shows. Yeah, yeah, but that's like my TV diet is pretty meat and potatoes. I would say. Um, what I'm really excited about at the moment is I just rewatched The Apartment. The oh yeah, Jack Billy Lemon. Wilder. Movie? Yeah, yeah, which I I knew was good, but I was really impressed with and felt very modern in some way. I don't know if that's up for any awards this year. We could bring it back. Um, yeah, <laughs> and. Um, I enjoyed Maniac, I think, and I'm still kind of thinking about Unpacking it. Unpacking that. Yeah, which I actually, is, I think, you know, I, I think, I feel we've talked about on the pod, we talked about how their Maniac and Homecoming are very interesting yeah. cousin mm-hmm. shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just because obviously the pharmacological elements of it, but also just there are elements of the Jonah Hill, Emma Stone relationship and the, the Cruz and Heidi relationship where it's like kind of, transcends whether it's like is this a romance is this a, just a friendship it's just like a relationship and it, mm-hmm. it had interesting echoes well and also just is this serious or is it funny yeah. you know I, I find just the, the quickest way to lose me is when shows take themselves so so seriously because I just don't know if any of them can really maintain sure. that over the course of a season and so that gray area that I think we're trying to occupy maniac patriot yeah 
even like Veep is on the other end of that spectrum, but it's still somewhere it's about serious things. Right. Yeah, right. Of course. Um, yeah, I think that's the, the the territory that we're eager to explore. Those are good answers. All right, guys. Thank you so much to Eli and Micah for stopping by the watch today. Check out Homecoming. Yeah, Thanks, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 production like Doorman Service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids, or Turndown Service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostats, all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Hotel Tonight by showing you top-rated hotels with unsold rooms. Hotel Tonight makes it easier to book your stay at an amazing rate. And even though their name is Hotel Tonight, you can book in advance. Perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, booking a place with a pool, and more. So to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, go to hoteltonight.com or download the app now.